Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. My name is Helen Mully and the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode is a writer with an extraordinary talent for creating stories that are so exciting they practically crackle and fizz as you turn the pages. A skill that he's clearly been growing from a very young age, given that when he was just 16 years old, he was able to fly from England to New York and talk himself into an intern job at Marvel Comics, which was where he sold his first story a while later. His CV also includes five years spent teaching English in Japan, swimming with sharks, wrestling camels, climbing Mount Fuji multiple times. And that's before you throw in writing the brilliant Sword of Kurumori series of books set in modern Japan and full of monsters and magic, as well as the new book that we're going to talk about today, Stealth. With all of that, I have a feeling we're not going to run out of conversation, so we should probably get started. Welcome to the podcast, Jason Rohan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You are most welcome. Okay, so I do very much want to talk about stealth today, Jason, but before we do, I know our listeners and I know the question that they will want me to ask first and it is how on earth do you wangle yourself a job at Marvel in New York as a 16 year old from the UK? Uh, I think by being incredibly stupid. (laughs) I've got that. Uh, Many 16 year olds and I think well I remember being that age that you think you can do anything and you can bend the world to your will. What happened was I was an avid reader of Marvel comics I think I read everything they did between about 1884 when I was between 12 and 16 years old. And because I was interested in writing, it was a natural thing for me to want to write comics. So I wrote to Marvel and I said, you know, I would love to come and work for you. You know, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll clean the toilets even. I'll, you know, make the coffee. Whatever you want, just give me a chance to come along and find out how comics are made. And as you'd expect, they didn't write back. <laughs> And I was 16, just finished my GCSE, so I had the summer off. And my parents said, you know, go to New York, visit your family. And I hadn't really wanted to spend six weeks stuck under uncles and aunts doing nothing, which is why I wrote back to Marvel again. And I said, I'm still here. I still want to work for you. I'll still come and do anything you want. I didn't hear back from you. Maybe you didn't get my letter. No problem. If you don't want me to come, write back and tell me not to come. (laughs) And that was probably the sneaky little trick I pulled because, of course, they didn't write back and they ignored me again, thinking, who's this crazy kid from England? So I went to New York as per the holiday plans, didn't tell anyone what I was doing, hopped on the subway train to the Park Avenue address that I knew Marvel had, up the elevator to the 10th floor, came out, confronted by a very scary-looking receptionist in a big cardboard cutout of the Hulk and Spider-Man. And they said, you know, why are you here? And I said, they're expecting me. And they were like, What? And after a lot of confusion, half an hour later, someone came out and said, are you the kid from England? I said, yes, that's right. They go, you are serious? I said, I'm here. So they had no choice. They were sort of stuck with me for the next six weeks. So they were able to put me on the internship program and I was able to work there every day doing all the horrible jobs like photocopying and running errands, but also a learning opportunity to sit there with the people who I, you know, my heroes and to find out, you know, how comics were made, how storytelling happened, and how the magic was created. So that was a 
a strange thing that probably could not be repeated now, looking back, but back at the time when security was less and people were more relaxed about things, it happened. That's such a fantastic story. And I'm interested to know what you did learn while, while you were there, because you were obviously already quite immersed in the world of, of, of comics and, and that kind of storytelling. And I imagine at 16, you probably thought you knew exactly how it was done, because at 16, we know exactly how everything is done. But was there anything that you learnt there that, that has really fed into your, your life as a storyteller? Oh, gosh, so many things. And again, this, I think, your readers can relate to as well. Because um, one of the things I did while I was there was I tried, you know, selling stories, saying I've got some ideas. And my editor at the time, Mark Gruenwald, said, look, okay, write something down and show me. And I wrote down what I thought was, was good. And he, he took one look and said, what is your opening page? You know, why is this the way it is? You know, he said, look, why do you think we call it a splash page? And I was thinking, I don't know, just one big panel. And he goes, listen, a kid picking up the comic book, looking at it on the newsstand, is going to open at the first page and they're going to make a judgment there and then if they want to buy it. So make it good. And I was like, oh, okay. So as with, with stealth, the, the, I always work very hard on the opening line. And I think you've seen this with other authors you've had. That you need to make that opening line do a lot of work to pull people into the story. And that's almost like the first lesson I took away from Marvel. Lots of other things, pacing, foreshadowing, um, setting up different multiple story arcs, you know, all these things I picked up along the way. But the key lesson I remember was get that front page right, get that first line right. That's excellent advice, isn't it? And it also will probably resonate with our listeners, I think, who very often are sitting in the classroom and the teacher will give them what is generally known as a, a story starter which will, be, um, which will be the first sentence of a paragraph or a page or a story. And, and the quality of those story starters can make quite a difference, I think, to, to what the end writing turns out to be. So to all the teachers and grown-ups listening, you, you need to work on your story starters. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Sorry, yeah, when I was, when I was um, eight years old, we had a lot of almost like posters in the classroom of various scenes. Like I remember one being like a Roman chariot race another one being like a, a jet fighter. And the teacher would say to us, you know, feel free to look at any of those pictures and write a story around them whenever you want. And that was another, you know, inspiration for me at that age to think, wow, you know, just, just take a jumping off point to see where it goes with you. So, yeah, those are very important cues for, for writers. Definitely. After New York, you somehow ended up in Japan. I mean, what, what led to that decision? Japan is a country that's always fascinated me. When I was... Again, a, a, a teenager. We had a TV series called Shogun, based upon a novel by uh, James Michener, I think. And in that TV series, it was set in ancient Japan, but you had samurai and ninja, all that sort of stuff. But the important concept that struck me was in Japan, honor was more important than life. And you had people taking their own lives rather than dishonor their name or their lord. And I thought, wow, what a different view of things, what a different concept that is. And then my other view of Japan came while I was at Marvel, when I saw anime and manga for the first time. And I was thinking, like, this is a very advanced storytelling techniques for what is a kid's cartoon. So in my head, I had those two images of Japan side by side. One, the traditional, ancient, honor-bound Japan. And the other, the high-tech, whizzy, imaginative, you know, colorful Japan. I thought, how do these two things sit together comfortably? So when I finished my English degree at uni, um, 
a friend of mine had gone to Japan to teach, and he said to me, go there, you will love it. And I thought, eh, maybe. So I looked into it, filled in the application, and um, to my surprise, was accepted. So I actually got to go to Japan to teach English for a private company to Japanese people. And I went on a, a two-year contract and stayed nearly five years because I loved it there. It was amazing. It was, it was a fantastic experience, and it was, um, yeah, changed my life, literally, because I met my, my wife there. And also, while, while you were there, while you were having all the experiences that you did, were you soaking things up that could perhaps be fed into a story later? Is, is, that, is that how how it happens for you? Not, not consciously. I mean, when I, when I came to write a children's book and I did the Sword of Kurumori, I made the conscious decision to set it in Japan because it hadn't really been done before. You know, I was aware of um, Percy Jackson and, and other books of its type, like uh, the Cain Chronicles and so on. And a lot of the mythologies they were looking at were ones that were somewhat familiar, you know, Egypt, um, Norwegian, you know, Viking, uh, Greek, Roman. And I thought, no one's done Japanese myth. And I thought maybe because partly that's because of the language difficulty. So I had the benefit of reading and writing some Japanese and being able to look at Japanese videos and things and tourist information and to do my research that way. And so it was a natural fit for me to try and bring Japan and Japanese myth and culture to life in a book. I thought it hasn't been done. And of course, it's set in modern Japan with ancient monster references and throwbacks. That gave me the best of both worlds. And it allowed me to explore that whole um, real tension between the old and the new, which I think defines Japan very much in a way that's different. You know, where we are, I think the difference is between wealth, you know, rich and poor, but out there it's very much... Um, you know, new and the old in challenge with each other. And a literal, you know, metaphor for that could be, you know, Godzilla fighting Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> you have the ancient <laughs> dragon versus the new high-tech version. And that encapsulates Japan for me in a nutshell. Oh, it sounds a really exciting writing opportunity for sure. And when I was looking at, at the, the books that you've written on and, and the life that you've led, it, it was clear that, you know, your experiences in Japan would, would have fed into this this trilogy of books that you wrote but I'm also guessing that while you were teaching English in in Japan you weren't fighting off magical monsters and and, and mythical creatures and, and wielding swords and such at least I, I very much hope you weren't that that's frowned upon in the teaching community I think we hear a lot um, especially children in the classroom they hear how important it is to to write what you know to write what you know and I'm interested in knowing from your perspective as an author how you get the balance right between between doing that, between writing what you know, but also using that incredible power as a writer that you have, which is your, your imagination. How, how do you get that balance right? Um, I think with the, the write what you know, that's simpler because you can tap into your own feelings. And so when I wrote the Kuramori book, the idea was this awkward teenage English kid goes over to Japan for the first time, totally clueless, and has to learn and adapt very quickly. And of course, that's all based on my own experience, because I went out there, again, like an idiot, same as Marvel, not knowing anything. You know, I didn't know any language, didn't know anybody there, didn't know anything at all about the country, really, after I'd signed up for a two-year stint. So those are the things I drew upon, especially in the beginning chapters of the book, you'll see it, as the main character, Kenny, arrives in Japan and has no clue what's going on or what's happening around him but has to learn and adapt very quickly. Otherwise, you know, his life will be over very quickly. So 
in, in the sense of write what you know, definitely that sense of um, wonder, that sense of confusion, that sense of of having to unravel what is going on around you. All those things come from my experience. And things like visiting temples in Japan, things like visiting the the, the amazing places within Tokyo itself, all these things I bring to the book. So when I wrote it, it was partly a travelogue, thinking if anyone goes to Japan, they can read this book before they go and be able to navigate things a little better than I was, uh, even with a glossary in the back of some Japanese words, so you know you know, at least how to get around and how to order a food and so on. So those little things I try to sneak in there as well. But uh, right what you know for me is center it in your own experiences and you can build the fantasy elements around that. But people are always the core of any story. That makes a lot of sense. And I, th- I think that's perhaps the bit that we forget. Sometimes when we're told to write what we know, we think, well, that's about the setting and the the view and and the buildings but of course what we know is also what's inside our head which is as rich and exciting as any flight of imagination we might take I think. So your latest book Stealth this is not set in Japan it's set in the UK and it's maybe just a year or two into the future but it's kind of set now and I want to be careful not to give away any huge spoilers because it is a very exciting adventure but let's just say it starts out with three very ordinary kids in a very ordinary secondary school and it quickly develops into an action story that is crammed with car chases and guns and ridiculously high-tech gadgets and of course you know the essential dastardly plot to take over the world. How important was that super ordinary starting point for this kind of adventure for you? To be honest, I didn't really think about it in that sense. I came to write it as a book for my kids because they said, look, Dad, you know, write something for us that we can enjoy and relate to. So I think them being middle graders made perfect sense for me and them going to school. So I actually borrowed quite a lot of elements from their school in terms of like the school colours I I nicked and (laughs) the layout of the school I took from where I grew up. So grounding it in a real day was very important for me with the story because it it takes off very quickly in another direction but it wasn't a conscious decision to start off as quote-unquote boring and normal as possible because again that earlier point about starting with a hook that will interest readers you know it's it's how do you do both how do you start with the most mundane ordinary day and at the same time put on that first two lines something that will grab a reader so that's why i went with the with the line that i took and i think it's no secret the opening line is you know why are there police at your house Everything in the story is following on from there, you know, the, the, the what, the why, the how, and the what ifs. So that was my, my opening line as to perfectly ordinary day at school, but police are at your house. Hello, something's wrong. I think that would make a really excellent story starter exercise, wouldn't it? Just think of a, of a question like that. And, and, and fling it on the page and then use the rest of the page to, to, to try and work out the answer to that question. I, I, I want to dig a lot deeper into the characters and the action of stealth. And I think a great way to start doing that would be if you could read a little bit from the book for our listeners. So if it's OK with you, I'm just going to pause the recording for a moment while you find the right page and then we'll come back for a taste of adventure.
Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with today's very special guest, Jason Rohan. Jason, you're going to read to us now from your latest book, Stealth. Before you start, would you mind explaining just a little about what's been happening in the story so far? I realise there's a lot to explain, so you may have to just pick out the the key points. But it's it's just to help our listeners put themselves in the picture a bit more. Yeah, sure. I mean, the story starts, you know, almost at nine o'clock virtually for when a school day begins. And this extract is at 3.30. So you can tell that the school day has gone. It's been quite an eventful day. At this particular point in the story, which is maybe two thirds of the way through, we have our three main characters, Aaron, Sam and Donna, in a stolen police car, as happens, with a kidnapped police officer in the car with them. It's not quite how it works, but that's a good summary for you. And they're kind of all coming together to work out the final part of the puzzle and to try and save the day. 1527. Donna signalled before changing lanes to avoid the exit for Heathrow Airport. Keep going down to Junction 12, then pick up the M3 towards Southampton, Sam said, his eyes on the phone. Gotcha, Donna said, as they passed Junction 14 on the M25. Sunny ran a finger along the inside edge of the bandage around her left arm to loosen it. She rotated her shoulder, her face twisting with pain. You should let it rest, Sam said, before you start it bleeding again. Yeah, yeah, whatever, she said, leaning back and closing her eyes. You know, there's still a few things I don't get. Such as, Aaron said, resting his arm on the back of the seat and twisting round. You're able to track them, so why did we just go and chase those idiots across London? You wanted to. Said it was your job, remember? We tried to tell you. Okay, I'll give you that. But you got Thorne to take your dad to Victoria, right? Correct. What were you thinking? I mean, transport police? It's a kidnapping, Aaron said. What else do we do? Doesn't the kidnapping end when the hostage is safe in police hands? At least that's what I thought. You were kind of making it up as you went along, you know. Yeah, I got that bit. But what's we giving over the laptop? I know it's blank and all, but why let them think they've got what they want? That's hardly going to slow them down, is it? We didn't have much choice. We had to bargain with something for Dad. How was I to know the police would be so stupid as to hand him right back? Aaron's face reddened as anger surged in him. Sonny opened her eyes. It wasn't that simple. You had professional soldiers up against a volunteer constable. What chance did he have? What chance did Dad have? At least your guys of training... All they had to do was take Dad in and this would have all been over. Aaron, you're a clever boy, so why don't you shut up and think before you say anything else? Aaron's cheeks felt hot and flushed, stung by the words. This isn't a dumb computer game where you win by achieving a set goal, Sonny went on. This is real life and these guys are up against aren't stupid. She shot a look at Sam. They're organised, they're armed, and they've got a plan. What makes you think a few silly kids getting in way over their heads is going to make any difference to them. The only reason you're still alive is they don't know you exist. Aaron blinked back hot stinging tears and slumped in his seat. Donna sucked her teeth, flicked the indicator downwards and swung the car across four lanes, neatly slipping between two lorries and breaking hard once she reached the hard shoulder. What are you doing? Sonny shouted as the car lurched to a stop and Donna killed the engine. Donna whirled round in her seat. You're lucky I'm driving, as I get out and slap you, she said, meaning every word. I beg your pardon, Sonny said. Listen up and listen good. 
Every time the feds have got involved, you know what's happened? You've got your butts kicked, that's what. Back at Aaron's house, you were there, and you went and sat in the car, meaning we were the ones who snuck in, past these MI6 bad boys, and got hold of the laptop. We were the ones who jacked the security on it, smuggled it out, and copied all the data. What were you doing? Nothing. We were the ones who got Thorne to the meeting point, and we gave him the laptop so we could track him with it. When Mossy showed up, all he did was get himself caught, and now we have to save his sorry backside too. Sam decided at that moment that he was in love. <laughs> I love that extract so much. And I, I love it because I think it gives you a real flavour of those three main characters, especially Donna. I, I have to admit, I'm a massive Donna fan. I think she's awesome. How, how easy did you find it to come up with a really rounded sense of what Aaron, Sam and Donna are like. I mean, you said you, you wrote it for your, your kids, so it could be relatable. Um, are, there, are, are there bits of them mixed up in the characters? Oh, de- oh definitely. Uh, I'm not sure they would agree. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I loosely modelled it on, partly on, on them, partly on the friends, partly on myself when I was their age and friends I had. So I pulled little bits together of different people. Aaron is sort of the calmer, more thinking type which is like one of my kids is like that very much he's very mature for his age sam i wanted to be more of a not not the goofy best friend but you often get these pairings with boys you'll have one who's a little more the leader one is a bit more the follower it doesn't mean that there's unequal balance in their their friendship it just means that one will have the ideas let's go and do this and the other one will be okay Uh, and sam was a little more in that with his own skills and uh, and donna is well, a force of nature, really. She's something else. And I wanted to have that contrast because with, with team books, like in comics, you have to have strong contrasting characters who all fit together and fulfill their purpose within the team. Um, if you look at the X-Men or anything like that, it's all about that. And Donna is based loosely on, well, my mother, I suppose, because my mother is quite a fiery character, as many Caribbean <laughs> um, ladies can be at times. So... It certainly bled into Donna's um, refusal to, to, to let anyone put her down. And she's also, she really is the one who makes things happen, doesn't she? I mean, that opening line that you quoted earlier on, that, that's, that's Donna. And if, if she hadn't asked that question, then the whole story would have unfolded very differently, wouldn't it? Perfect. I'm glad you noticed that. It, it didn't occur to me at the time until much, much later when I was looking at the story and then I realized that Donna is the main character. You know, I wrote it thinking it would be Aaron because it's his dad who gets kidnapped and he's the one who's on a mission to rescue his dad. But actually, Donna is the main character because in, in writing terms, she is the what we call the protagonist. That's the person who drives the story forward. And it's her decisions and her quick thinking to get them out of trouble that keeps them on track, even down to her driving the car towards the end. So... Without meaning to, it, it to happen, Donna became the main character. You're quite right. She is the uh, the protagonist. She's the key. She's the one that makes it all happen. Unexpectedly, I would add. Yes, and and she's also it, it's not it is not a preachy book in any way at all. It, it hasn't got a, a message that it's carrying very heavily. It's it's a it's a romp, you know, a, an enjoyable adventure. But at the same time, there are things to take away, aren't there, about the assumptions we make about people especially the assumptions that that even Sam not not Aaron so much but Sam certainly has assumptions about Donna which are based on you know her reputation at school and and she has she has her own 
backstory, which we un- we uncover a little bit of during the story. So yeah, there there is there is definitely um, things to think about about not making assumptions about people. I think. Yeah, I mean, again, I am. Um something that I grew up with, you know, myself, because people would hear, okay, Jason Rohan, and have a sense of assumptions immediately that, okay, it's an English sounding name, therefore he's probably going to be, uh, you know, white, middle-class English bloke, which is not what I am at all. So having grown up with those assumptions and those preconceptions, even as as a small child, people assume things about you that invariably are wrong. I wanted to bring that into the story, really, because if you can have a diverse cast of characters, well, you shouldn't ignore it and treat them all as if they're they're not from different, you know, backgrounds. So you have to take the bull by the horns and, you know, just deal with it, really. There are a few references to, in the story where people, it's not overt racism, but there's little subtle, you know, micro comments that that I wanted to keep in because they're very much part of real life and to have Donna confront them and deal with them. Yes, these will be experiences that, that many of our listeners will be familiar with to, to one extent or another and part of the the reading experience is, is to escape and take you out of yourself but also I think part of it is to to see yourself and and to see yourself through other people's eyes and to have yourself reflected and I, I think I think books can do both of those things at once and that's just one of the reasons why books are so brilliant <laughs> yeah exactly I mean when I was growing up I didn't read many books with characters like me in them, you know, they were very much um, written for uh, a different group, shall we say, you know, like the classics from the Victorian era, children very different then, and then the early 30s, 40s, Enid Blyton, for example. That's what I grew up reading, but they were all happy, middle-class, well-adjusted kids, and uh, that's not what I could necessarily, you know, relate to. I could enjoy the book, certainly, I could read them, certainly, but I thought if I'm going to write something, well, that ground's already been covered, so let's do something a little different, a little more down to earth, a little more recognisable, a little more closer to home. So that's what I tried to do. Yeah, and I think you very much succeeded. And and the wonderful thing about stealth, I think, it, one of the wonderful things about stealth, sorry, I'm raving a bit, I did like it very, very much, is that these three kids achieve incredible things during the course of the story, but they they are not superheroes. I mean, they've, they've got strengths <laughs> and, and weaknesses as well, but they are, you know, they, they could be any of us, really. And I think that's marvellous. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is is more the, the mechanics of writing a real action story, because I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the idea that, that when you're asked by a teacher to, to write something, you, you draw on the kind of the, the films or the, the TV programs that you enjoy. And what you want is to try and create that same sense of action and adventure on the page. So you're instantly describing crashes and bangs and, and chases and explosions and, and all those exciting things. But action, I don't think, is, is, a, is an easy genre to write in because you you have to keep the reader excited with lots of of noise and things happening but you also need to carry them along for the story so they know where they are and and what's going on and I would be interested to know how you as a writer get that balance right stealth is a really exciting book but I never got so lost in the excitement I didn't know what the story was doing I come from a background with comics and film um, so I think visually a lot of what I do I start off with just the images and then I add the words because that's how comic books are written that's how films are made 
And with a film script, and again, you can get these now. So by all means, you know, try and get a few scripts out of the library and have a look at them. They're called a film script for a reason because they're written very much like a screenplay. And you have the character and you have the dialogue and then you have the action described in short paragraphs. To adapt that to a book, a novel, the written um, form for me wasn't a huge jump, but it does require a different um, way of thinking because action happens very quickly. I know it's a daft thing to say, but it's true. And you watch a film like, let's say, The Avengers. If you actually break it down and look at The Avengers, you think, wow, exciting film, great action. But if you look at it closely, you'll see the action itself is not the majority of the film. And it may be 20% of the running time even, or even 15%. But you don't realize that when you're watching because you get carried away in it. And the action itself is a short part of the whole story because it's so important to have the connecting sequences, the reasons, justification, and so on. With stealth, I knew that I wanted to have a large number of action set pieces. And part of the reason for that was my kids kept prompting me and prodding me. I would say to them, read what I've done so far, what do you think? Let's say, more action, Dad, more action. And I'm like, come on. These are like 12-year-old boys. And it was at the point, I actually had to take some of it out because my editor was like, this is too much. You know, no one gets a chance to breathe. It's like a roller coaster for an hour, you know, stop it. So quite a few scenes were cut. So there'd be an interesting director's cut one day. (laughs) When writing action, I think the thing to understand and to remember is to know your start point and know your end point. And you, you have to choreograph it bit like a a dance sequence or a video for for a writing viewpoint this is a tip for anyone listening with action you go short on the sentences because it's just like film if you've got uh, a long slow panoramic sweep showing you the scenery in a book you can spend a page writing about trees and mountains and the weather and the lighting and so on when it comes to the action you get short sharp cuts like james bond jason bourne and it's wham bam 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 So when you write, do the same thing with the sentences. And it's almost like controlling the tempo and the flow, you know, fast, fast, slow, slow. Again, like football, you know, you see a player like Ronaldo picks up the ball and he'll change his speed as he goes along. He'll change his tempo and he'll he'll slow down to trick a defender, then speed up and flick in the ball. And in the same way, when you're telling a story, even to your friends, you know, like me recounting this football, without realizing it, your voice speeds up, the sentences get shorter and that conveys the action. Same as um, film and television, you know, short, short, sharp sentences carry the eye along quickly and then you can slow it down with the aftermath and catch your breath and then the next move. That is really brilliant advice, Jason. Thank you so much. There are lots more questions I'm keen to ask you, but before we move on, I do need to remind all the grown-ups listening that we produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so that children can be supported to put advice like they've just heard into action and write exciting, ambitious, fast-moving stories of their own. You can find all the packs, including the one based on stealth, at plazoom.com and details are in the episode notes. Jason, I'm just going to pause the recording for a moment so everyone can make a full note of that very important information. And then if it's okay with you, we can dive back in for a bit more of a chat. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with me, Helen Mully, and our guest today, Jason Rohan, author of Stealth, amongst other titles. 
Jason, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your journey to becoming a writer. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what it was like at school. What, what kinds of things were you reading and writing at school? My, my parents came over as part of the Windrush generation back in the, the late 60s, or early 60s, I should say. I mentioned that because my mother did not finish school. She finished school at 14 because that's how things were back then. She came from Trinidad in the Caribbean. So her education was very, very important to her because she herself was denied that. So when I was small, she taught me to read before I went to school. The idea being we'd have a head start, she was thinking. So when I started, um, I want to say kindergarten, you know, nursery, whatever, I, I was able to read. And so while the teachers were doing, you know, phonics, you know, ah, b, or k, at, t, uh, I was finishing the, the, the whole series of eight prime, primers already. So they were like, what do we do with this kid? Because he's, you know, we can't, he knows how to read. So all these reading lessons are wasted. So one of my teachers had the bright idea of giving me a library card. And they said, look, there's the school library. Help yourself. While we're doing phonics with the others, just pick a book and read it. Do what you want. And that was amazing for me because it opened the whole world. So I would help myself to all the books and I would just read everything I could find. Even things probably I shouldn't have been reading because they're on the upper shelves. I could reach them. That was pretty much all I was doing. So later on, when I when we got creative writing free time and i was given a diary and storybook to fill in with the instruction go away and write something any every day whatever you want that was amazing again great for me so i would go home and get the pencil out and i would just write stories to my heart's content and the teachers would come back and be very encouraging and say you know this is great and they would read some out to the class sometimes so i decided at the age of eight that i wanted to be a writer before that i thought detective i thought astronaut and then I realized, if you're a writer, you can be all of those things. You can be a detective, an astronaut, anything you want to do without the danger and without the, the risk involved. So I'd sort of set myself on that path. And then everything sort of went from there. Because when I was 12, I got bored reading, quote unquote, proper books, because I'd read enough of them. And that's why I switched to comics for a few years, just to give myself something else to read. And that drew me in. And then, as you know, the rest went from there in terms of 16 at Marvel and then Japan and then coming back from Japan, settling down, having a family and then starting to write again. So it's something that I've always wanted to do. And always real life got in the way many, many times. But uh, <laughs> finally, I got there. Yeah. And, and essentially, as we hear over and over again in, in this podcast, reading generated the desire to tell stories or, or it supported the desire to tell stories. So that the more the more you read, the more confident you got about your own storytelling ability, I suppose. I think that's right. I think unconsciously you absorb things like a three-act structure or you absorb things like the fact that a lot of what drives a story forward is, is conflict, which can be, you know, there's different kinds of conflict, but you, 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 yeah, you unconsciously learn, keep the characters in tension with each other and with the plot and their objectives and to sort of learn to juggle all these balls in the air at the same time to make sure that you're dealing with, you know, characters' personal issues as well as their wider issues as well as the challenges they're trying to overcome and really all the obstacles that are in their way to achieving the objective in the story. So yeah, subconsciously you absorb all this and the more you read, the more you absorb. Although I wouldn't say that's the best advice for a writer is just to read because I was given that advice myself and I wouldn't necessarily follow it, which I suppose leads to the question of what advice would I give? And that is to, to, to practice, <laughs> to write, to actually do it. Something else I would say too though, is to seek out things that you would not, would not normally want to, to read. Okay. Because you learn so much from the things you don't like. It's like with a film. If I see a film, I don't like it. I'll come out thinking, why did I not like it? What didn't work for me? And you can learn so much from taking it apart and thinking, well, yeah, that 
character didn't make sense because they started behaving in a way that contradicted what they were doing before, or that didn't make sense because that couldn't happen, which is most Fast and Furious films, Um, although I do enjoy them. You might think that I couldn't possibly comment. So read things like um, romance fiction, if you don't want to read romance fiction. Read sports fiction, if you don't want to read sports fiction. Read things you don't want to read and ask yourself why you didn't like them. And you may even find you do like them. So it's a challenge yourself, definitely. Do not close down doors and put yourself in a box thinking, I only like this sort of stuff. You know, it's all out there. Have a look at it all. That's that's brilliant. And and to an extent, that was my experience with, with stealth because on, on paper, it's not the sort of story that I would be drawn to. I, I'm not, I'm not you know, normally attracted by action movies or action stories, but I started reading stealth and it turned out that I, I did. I absolutely loved it. So you can you can find things in in unexpected places and uh, and learn unexpected ways to to tell stories. Talking of stealth, it is it is very much the the first book in a series. I mean the the title is an acronym, and by the end of the story, we don't even know what the initials stand for. So clearly, there's at least one revelation to come, or at least I very much hope there is. How far have you planned out? Um, what's going to happen with Aaron and Sam and Donna already? Is it all there already? E- yes and no. <laughs> the worst possible answer. <laughs> I know how it's going to end in terms of I know where the, the final book is, is going to, to be and how it will take place. And I've got a various other ideas between now and then. But I haven't necessarily planned every book in detail. Now, I'm not J.K. Rowling. I haven't got a seven-book plan in my head before I start. <laughs> um I've got my beginning and I've got my end and the middle I will work out as I go. Again, that's something else I do when I write, again, for, for the benefit of anyone listening. I always know my ending. And I believe that when you're writing, often it's like a, a journey into the unknown. But if there's a mountain on, the, on the, the horizon, you keep aiming for that. You know where you're going. And often with a story, I know the beginning, I know the ending. Uh, the middle I'll work out as I go along. But knowing the ending is so important to keep you on the path. So you can create obstacles, you can go off on different side routes, sure, you can try different things, but always know your ending and always work towards your ending. Are you going to tell us what stealth stands for? No. <laughs> Curses, I thought I might surprise you into giving it away and giving us a, a author in your classroom scoop. In which case, I don't suppose we have a choice. We will just have to keep on reading the books until we find out. And in all seriousness, listeners, I think that would be a very good thing for you to do with your time it's it's a brilliant book and i'm sure there are more brilliant books to come on that note jason i think this that's probably about it for this episode that's probably about all we've we've got time for it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you for your time and uh, thank you for sharing your advice with us and maybe let us know when the next installment of stealth is out and thank you so much for having me and i hope everyone out there you know will will go away and write their own action stories now too i hope that too author in your classroom is brought to you by plazoom where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, 
where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on Plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.